This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now it's time for our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. And now Jesse Edwards brings us the story of a music producer in Nashville, Tennessee, who was shut down by the local government. What does Disney, Hewlett-Packard, Apple, Microsoft, Dell, Amazon, Google, and Harley-Davidson all have in common? They all started at home. 69% of entrepreneurs start their businesses at home, and there are 38 million of them across the United States. It's generating big money of $427 billion per year. Take our guest Liz Shaw, for example, a music producer who moved to Nashville in 1991. And Lidge is actually short for Elijah, and uh, it's easy to remember because Lidge rhymes with fridge because I'm cool like that, which is terrible, but now you won't forget. <laughs> Lidge has recorded with performers like John Oates, Jack White, Wilco, Adele, and the Zac Brown Band. He calls his Grammy Award-winning studio the Toy Box Studio. And it all started when his uncle showed him a few chords on the guitar. You know, for me, music was um, something that was definitely part of my family growing up. It wasn't like I really came from a big musical family necessarily. You know, my mom and my dad, my mom was a, an artist, a painter, and my dad was an um, international banker and, and really loved history. But both of them really had an appreciation for music. And so, I, you know, I grew up in, um, for the first six years, five years of my life in Brooklyn, New York. So, of course, I was seeing and being influenced by a lot of music. Um, But it really was not something that I considered very seriously until just before my 18th birthday in high school. And that summer, I remember picking up a guitar at our summer house, and my uncle showed me my first three chords. He was like, well, here's the three chords you need to know, um, Lidge, if you want to you know, be able to play a song. Just know the E chord, the A chord, and the B7 chord, and, and then everything's good to go. And so I learned those chords, and I remember coming back after that summer trip. My dad actually bought me a guitar for my birthday, and it, so I'm, I was just like banging out these three chords I knew uh, all night in my, in my room in the house, and my stepdad would even come in and, you know, Lidge, it's 1 o'clock in the morning, you need to, you need to pipe down. So it was like a Sears and Roebuck classical guitar that was actually, I think it was broken on the front or something. It was a little bit beat up, but it still sounded great and was good enough for me. When I went off to college to go study architecture, I, you know, I heard some guitars being strummed from down the hallway in the dorm room, and I just went knocking on the, you know, knocking on my neighbor's door in the dorm room, and I was like, "Hey, man, you guys playing guitar? You know, I play guitar." <laughs> And and that sort of sparked friendships, and I saw people writing songs and having fun with it for the first time, and you know, it just took me another four or five years before I finally realized that this is what I really love to do and, and decided to go to school for it. I actually found a school called MTSU, Middle Tennessee State University, and this is back in 1991. They had just built a wonderful recording program here. Um, it was like the big new building on campus. Now, you know, um, 30 years later almost, it's like the teeny building that's hard to find surrounded by much bigger buildings. <laughs> um, but I came down to Nashville, and I didn't know anything about 
music professionally. I didn't know, um, I didn't even know Nashville was really a music city, quote unquote. I knew, you know, I only learned later that it was like New York, uh, Los Angeles and Nashville was like the middle coast for making music. I just knew that there was a good school here and that making records was what I really wanted to do. So I came on down here and spent a couple of years in college and got a second bachelor's degree, this time a bachelor's of science in recording engineering. I did the recording program and then, you know, the logical next step was to get an internship at a studio. Um, and of course, I, uh, Murfreesboro, where the school is, is a little about, about half an hour south of Nashville. So I got an internship in a studio up here in Nashville and started coming up and, you know, seeing what it looked like to be in a professional studio. It was a beautiful place called Woodland Studios, which is still here in East Nashville and is now owned by uh, Gillian Welch and Dave Rollins. And they do um, some wonderful music. You know, they had done the soundtrack to Oh Brother, Why Art Thou? and come from that kind of old school appreciation of music. While I was doing my internship, I, uh, you know, saw a bunch of different records come in. Most of them were country records. You know, there was this new artist that came in called Keith Urban, and he came in to make a record. Um, Emmy Lou Harris came in to make a record. She did Wrecking Ball, and I met Daniel Lenoir in person, um, who's, you know, an incredible producer and, and has worked with U2 and Peter Gabriel and done all kinds of great records, Bob Dylan. And so I saw these great records happening, um, and then these two guys came in, and they were doing a really kind of a very different sounding record from one of the other studio rooms. Door was open, and I kept hearing all this cool music come out. And it was an artist named uh, Jill Sobule, who's still a brilliant songwriter and making great records today. Um, but they had this record with uh, a single that came out called I Kissed a Girl, which was actually the original version of that song a decade before Katy Perry had her big hit in the 2000s. Um, and I just remember I met, I met these guys that were producing the album and they would come out to the lounge and have coffee and I, I'd get a chance to meet them and they seemed real cool. And I finished my internship and then I was sort of like, you know, didn't know what I was going to do next. I ended up going by the record store one day and I see the, the finished album, Jill Sobule on the shelves and I listened to it and I was like, Oh my God, this, this record's brilliant. So I found out what the studio was and I actually called them up. Uh, just getting the number out of the yellow pages and they the producers answered the phone and invited me to come get my first job making records over there um, and this is a place called Alex the Great across town in Berry Hill from a passion of music to figuring out how to do that for a living from paying his internship dues to a paying job in the recording business Liz Shaw is about to live out his dream that is until the local government gets involved and we'll continue with Lidge Shaw's story. And what a story it is here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story shared with your friends. And follow us on Facebook at ouramericannetwork.org.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with the story of Lyd Shaw, a record producer who, as you're about to hear, was shut down by his local government. Here again is Jesse Edwards with this unbelievable story from Nashville, Tennessee. When we left off, Liz had gone from a dreamer to a doer. After realizing his dream of being a music producer was in reach, he went back to school, went through an internship, and landed a paying gig in the industry. All at a time when analog was out and digital was in. And so I started to see a lot of, I guess, like sort of like the birth of home studios uh, in a way there. This was a commercial facility, but they were able to build a recording studio and make records with super affordable gear, the same kind of gear that was available for people who wanted to start home studios and, you know, DIY um, musicians and artists that wanted to record their own records using tools like ADATs, which were these um, digital tape recorders that would use video cassettes to record the music on VHS cassettes. And they, so it made it really affordable to start making records and it's before computers were introduced. And so they built a studio with this and then they had, you know, an affordable mixer called a Mackie mixer. And I just really got excited about the kind of music and the kind of people and the kind of bands and artists that I was seeing come through the studio there. And simultaneously all through the rest of the nineties and into the two thousands, we had this, global introduction of the home studio as an alternative to, you know, the the big kind of expensive commercial studio. And there were tons of producers, engineers, bands, artists that were all just embracing this new technology with computers becoming more and more affordable and more powerful. Now you could buy, you know, a Macintosh computer from the store or a PC, set it up in a spare room in your house and plug in, you know, a cable to have a little interface, plug in a couple of mics, and bam, you've got what basically sounded pretty close to a professional recording studio right in your own home. And so I saw all these people doing that and building studios around Nashville inside homes, and I thought, you know, this is really for me. I really love doing independent music. I love working with local artists. Um, you know, I still want to, you know, have a big award one day working with a major label artist as well but this seems like really the avenue to be able to focus on the art that i love about making music and not be totally just kind of drawn into the big commercial corporate machine for making music and so that really appealed to me and i remember probably around 97 or so i decided 98 maybe i decided that i wanted to have a five-year plan and i thought to myself i was like you know what I want to have my own home recording studio. That's sort of my five-year goal. You know, have a home, have a studio, be able to wake up, grab your coffee in the morning, go straight into the studio and start making records. And that's exactly what Liz did. He bought a house in Nashville where he could build a professional soundproof studio. It had a a well-sealed basement. In fact, that was one of the first things I did is I called up a buddy of mine, um, uh, Ken Coomer, who played drums with Wilco at the time, and he came over and did me a huge favor. And I just said, "Dude, will you, will you do me a favor? I want to, I want to buy this house, and I want to make sure that I can record in it. But I want to make sure I don't bother the neighbors. Will you just beat the crap out of your snare drum down in the basement, and I'm going to go walk around the house and see if I can hear it." And so he he did that for me. Thank you, Ken. And um, you know, I walked around and it was like, "Wow, that's 
This is perfect. Liz Shaw invested thousands of dollars to build his award-winning studio. And this isn't your friend's closet that was converted into a so-called podcast studio either. This studio kept his bills paid and his passion alive. And then... I've made records happily and successfully for a decade before the city sent me a letter in 2015 that said, you have to cease and desist being the toy box studio and operating as a commercial studio in a residence. A man's livelihood shut down over a code violation. If you're zoned residential, you can get permission to work from home or have you know, a home occupancy permit, but you're not allowed to have a customer or a client come over to your house. And that applies to everybody who's doing anything in Nashville. If you're a nice little old lady in the neighborhood and you want to teach piano to the other kids in the neighborhood, that's not legal according to the Nashville um, Codes Ordinance. But the nightmare was just beginning for simply operating a successful home business in Nashville, Tennessee. Liz Shaw was now facing home inspections, warrants, and even censorship. So I got the cease and desist letter, and then it said I had, I think, 30 days to be in compliance. And so that was it was that 30 days of not sleeping, talking to people, um, figuring out what to do, having an interview in the local newspaper. And then I got a call a month later from the city codes inspector, and she said, you know, okay, are you ready to schedule an inspection? And I said, what do you mean schedule an inspection? Um, I got your letter. I'm trying to be in compliance, you know, help help clarify what that means and help me understand so that I can, can you know, be in compliance because this is my home. This is where I live. I have a home studio. This is what That's what I do. And she said, well, we need to come do a walkthrough inspection and confirm that you've removed all recording equipment from the premises. And I was just like, whoa, slow down. You know, this is my home. This is where I live. I can't do that. You know, I can't just move on. I mean, what am I going to do? This is, this is my home. And so she um, said, well, let me check. I'll check with the, the supervisor. And she called back a little bit later. And this is the actual audio of the chilling voicemail that the county official left. Hi, this is with the Coast Department. I just checked with our zoning administrator, and he did say you don't have to remove your equipment. But if any, if there are any further complaints about uh, the use of this property as a recording studio for anyone other than you, and that does include your podcast, then we will go uh, straight to a warrant and obtain a court order. Thank you. Goodbye. You know, I don't want somebody knocking on my door and throwing me in handcuffs in front of my daughter just because I'm trying to make records. So what do you do in a situation like that? Thousands of dollars, a decade of work, regular income, realized dreams, gone. How do you react? First thing you do is freak out. Um, I remember just being in a state of shock. I don't think I slept for a week. I didn't even know if I wanted to tell anybody yet because I was thinking... You know, it's a devastating thing to be told to stop working when the work you do is the very thing that feeds you and feeds your family and pays your bills and keeps a roof over your head. Uh, But I knew I needed to be able to have supportive friends and family. So, you know, I finally started talking to a couple of friends about it. Um, So I did an interview in the Tennessean newspaper, which I believe got front page um, right around Thanksgiving that year. 
And that just seemed to generate quite a lot of interest, um, you know, and quite a lot of passionate defense of this whole issue. Keith Diggs from the Institute of Justice reached out to me, and we had a phone call and began talking about the issue. And, you know, he really expressed interest in um, coming to my aid and, and, and defending me and, you know, maybe talking about ways that we could do something about this case, uh, because it really was at the core of the Institute for Justice's cause and mission statement. And it was shortly after that, too, that uh, Braden Busek uh, reached out to me from the Beacon Center here in Nashville. And same thing, that is also at the core of their mission statement, is to find people and help defend um, property rights, economic liberties, and, you know, constitutional liberties for people right here in Tennessee. You know, I couldn't even afford to do anything about this. It just it seemed astronomical to try and defend myself um, and hire a lawyer for something that just seemed so uh, hard to figure out in the first place. After talking to the Institute for Justice and then talking to the Beacon Center, I thought, well, if you guys are really good at what you do and you're really good at what you do and we all want a, the same end result, why don't we just all work together? So that... Um, sort of sparked an idea for us to just meet simultaneously, which we did, and everybody seemed to be on the same page, and um, it was pretty incredible. I mean, I feel very fortunate that such a bad thing could happen to me, but in the end, such a good thing could happen that all of a sudden I end up with this, you know, incredible legal team coming to my my aid to try and help out on this issue, Um, and I like to refer to them now as the League of Justice. Thanks to the Institute for Justice and the Beacon Center, Liz Shaw stands a fighting chance of getting his livelihood back. But he still has a long way to go in the courts. And when we continue, we'll hear more of Liz Shaw's story. But he's got the Institute for Justice on his side, a band of legal litigators that, my goodness, defend property rights and property interests all over this country. Ordinary folks facing Well, let's just say extraordinary measures by their local, state, and national governments. When we continue more of Liz Shaw's story, here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and we conclude now the story of Lyd Shaw, a music producer who was forced to close his small business by the local government in Nashville, Tennessee. And I just keep thinking about getting a call like that, a message left on your phone machine, no less. It's just so cold. Here again is Jesse Edwards. From a young musician with a dream to a professional producer at his successful home recording studio, which won a Grammy Award, Liz Shaw was shut down by his county government for operating a business in a residential zone. After being threatened with home inspections, arrest warrants, and having his equipment confiscated, Liz went to the press and found overwhelming support, not only from his community, but by legal groups like the Institute for Justice and the Beacon Center, who are helping him and other home-based business owners in the Nashville area 
get back to what they do for a living. It really feels so good to have that kind of support and have a team that's on my side. And more importantly, you know, one of the things that they really do um, that's helped me out tremendously is educate me and help me understand how, um, you know, I'm in a position of importance for, 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 you know, fighting this battle and how my needs are relevant and my rights as a citizen, as a homeowner, um, as a as a single dad, as a parent, those are all legitimate and real rights that really do need to be defended, um, you know, pretty pretty strongly, and are worth worth defending because I think it's very easy for us at times to just kind of you know cower down under under the oppression of being told you can't do something and just assume. Uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of us assume that, that we must be doing something wrong if somebody told us that we're doing something wrong, and that may not be the case. And now it's time to fight back. But there are certain loopholes Lige and his legal team must jump through to proceed in this nightmarishly boring court. Nashville does allow a specific plan rezoning, SP rezoning of residential properties. It has allowed it, and it still does allow it. And so we realized we're going to need to go through that process first and apply for an SP rezoning before we can actually, you know, go to the next level. And in other words, that's the first thing to try. So we went through that whole process throughout the entire year of 2017, which involved uh, finding actually a local land use attorney and filed for rezoning. That had to go in front of the planning commission for approval. Um, it got disapproved. Then, you know, we went through this whole process and, and, and I think there were a few different times we had to go up and to city codes for my rezoning application to be heard. And on the final one, it was a very long city council meeting and they spent quite a long time deliberating over some um, short-term rental issues, basically the the Airbnb topic here. And then they finally put mine up for vote when everybody was just dying to go home and it voted so fast, and they um, there were 14 yeses from city council members, um, and they had really talked about this stuff um, quite at length, and everybody seemed to agree that at the core of what I was trying to do, it was okay and should be allowed, but they just couldn't quite agree on how the city should, you know, what the process was for allowing it. And so then 20 city council members voted no, Therefore, it didn't pass. It needs, I think, a two-thirds majority for an SP rezoning. Hitting that brick wall of bureaucracy, Lige, the Institute for Justice, and the Beacon Center filed a lawsuit against the city of Nashville with a co-plaintiff. My co-plaintiff is Pat Rayner, who is a retired hairstylist. She's been doing hair for clients for her whole life and their lives. And she just wants to be able to continue to support herself in her retirement because she can't stop working. She's already 69 years old. And she just wanted to be able to continue to cut hair for those clients out of her home. And she also got shut down by the city. Um, So we teamed up with the law firms and filed a lawsuit against the city of Nashville defending our constitutional right to be able to continue working from our home and support ourselves and support our family and pay our bills and you know, make an honest living. We're basing our entire lawsuit on defending our constitutional right under the Tennessee Constitution 
to be able to make an honest living from our homes and that specifically there's a discrimination going on by the city of Nashville, by Davidson County, by Metro in saying we're going to allow some people to have home businesses and see clients like home daycares, neighborhood daycares. We already allow um, short-term rentals. We, you know, people can put up Airbnbs. In fact, you know, on, on a limited scale now, um, people are able to put up Airbnbs and have short-term rental property, even if they don't live there as a landlord. And um, there are properties that are rezoned, have been traditionally, uh, were just again this year for historical rezoning, which basically says, you know, we're going to recognize this property as being of historical significance. And with that, it means that you can operate as a commercial business out of this location and you can have customers and clients come over and, you know, do things like have events or have an operating business and that sort of thing. Um, all of which sound like per perfectly reasonable uh, use cases for allowing a home business. You know, obviously we need daycares. Um, people do need to be able to have a place to sleep in a town that's affordable. And I think that people should be able to make a room or make their house available for somebody to rent on a short-term basis if it's a positive thing. And, of course, we, wanna, we want to upkeep historical locations and properties all across the city because that's how you keep the, the heart and the spirit of the city. But at the same time, it's an infringement and a discrimination uh, against us, it's an infringement of our constitutional right to be able to also do that. You know, everybody who wants to be able to support themselves from their home, particularly home studios, because there's lots all over Nashville, um, hairstylists like like Pat's, uh, like like her home, that should be allowed as well. And it's not fair if the city says, hey, you can't do it. Everybody else can, but you can't do it. Liz Shaw is continuing his fight in the courts as we speak. And we will follow up once a judge has reached a conclusion as to whether or not he can be allowed to conduct business in the privacy of his own home. Despite all the drama, he hasn't lost his love for Nashville. He's staying and fighting for everyone else who wants to run their own business from their house. When I finished school and I was, you know, first thinking about where I wanted to live, my first thought was I'm going to go back to St. Louis where my friends are and my last band was. And, you know, you know that's where I want to go make records. And it was that process of seeing people who were really serious and professional about making music and the art of recording music here that made me realize, oh, wait a minute, Nashville's a great place to be. And, you know, it's this wonderful place that has a real, like, it's it's a real growing metropolis, but it's always had kind of a small town feel in a lot of ways. I mean, it's also a place where you could still find a home that you could afford and maybe you've got some green grass and a yard and, you know, maybe you can make music in your, your home studio and it's not going to bother anybody because, for one, I mean, my studio's soundproofed, so literally not going to bother anybody. But also, on you know, at, at the core of being in Music City is that people who live here love music, so therefore they just, you know, they want to hear more of it, not less of it. To visit Liz Shaw's Toy Box Studio online, check out all that he does at thetoyboxstudio.com. You can hear the music he mixes, check out his podcast, and send him some words of encouragement. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job on that, Jesse. And that story hits close to home. My sister and her husband worked a home studio in northern New Jersey. 
and have a home studio in Los Angeles, California, and they do all of their business from their home. So many of us, so many more of us are doing the same. And I love that you heard a musician say, it's my constitutional right to be able to make an honest living in my home. Indeed it is. And thanks to IJ, Institute for Justice. What a group, if you care to, give them money because they're helping fight, well, fight laws that just make no sense. IJ.org is how you can help. Lid Shaw's story, a remarkable freedom story, property rights story, and rule of law story here on Our American Story.